You're listening to the Women's Health Cast, a podcast about issues and innovations in women's health from the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. I'm Jackie Askins. I'm confident that, should we need it, each of us would choose to have a surgeon who is well-trained in the latest techniques. But what does surgical education look like? How do our doctors keep up with an ever-changing and increasingly technological field? And how do we evaluate what good surgical teaching and good surgical learning are? On this episode of the Women's HealthCast, I sat down with Ken Kim to learn more about how surgeons learn. Dr. Kim is Director of the Gynecologic Oncology Fellowship and Director of Robotic Surgical Education and Training at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Ken Kim from the University of Alabama. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Uh, So you're visiting us in Wisconsin today. You just presented a Grand Rounds lecture to our department about surgical learning, surgical education. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about what you covered in your presentation? Yeah. So a lot of it was um, how to apply, practically apply educational theories and learning approaches, as well as teaching styles uh, to maximize the, the yield of the learner, which will ultimately better, be better for a program and for ultimately healthcare if, it, if it's more prevalent. It's not something that's routinely teached in medical school or any sort of uh, training. Wisconsin here is actually lucky because it's one of the few programs that has a really robust um, faculty development and a legacy in medical education and teaching Um, people how to teach better, but that's not common across the country. Why did this become an interest for you? You know, I don't really know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was a former tennis pro, so I actually had to teach like tennis camps and things like that growing up. And there's a lot of similarities with teaching surgery versus teaching a sport. But to me, it's mostly just being able to take care of a patient with an entire team. And if you're going to be there, a lot of it is just talking to the team, figuring out, hanging out with them, figuring out what's best for the patient, how to approach it, um, and how to make them successful ultimately so that they can go on and do even better things. I have a few questions about some of the concepts you covered in your talk that I found really, really interesting. I guess I want to start with the idea of grit and perseverance. Um, You talked a little bit about kind of the balance between, you know, people come in with innate talent or innate levels of skill and... Well, tell me more about grit. Tell me about grit. Yeah, grit is um, emerging basically from um, a woman named Angela Duckworth at Penn. And it's not much is known about it yet, but you can you can figure out a grit scale score on any given individual. And it's basically perseverance and passion for a long-term goal. And that seems to be the most important thing in getting people uh, to be successful um, with all things being equal, with talents being equal, grit grit overcomes that. Um, so not much is known about it. Certainly not much is applied in medicine about it because it's, it's a new concept um, um, that she's been working on. Um, but it's really interesting and it probably applies a lot, particularly in surgeons and surgical fields. When you were talking about it, it kind of made me think of, and this is very different, but some schools or theories around um, in kind of instilling in, in children in an, an idea that effort is important too, right? So it made me wonder, you know, giving feedback to a, a kid to be able to say, wow, you tried really hard can be as valuable as saying, wow, you're very smart. Because it kind of instills that value of like, 
the effort is a really important piece of this equation. It's not all. It's not all innate. Yeah. Necessarily. It's um. Yeah, there's a balance, um, and it's it it can vary depending on the individual, whether it's a child or an adult, depending on their talent, their personality, their ability. So those are all factors that you have to take into account to, to kind of strike the right balance um, with the best way to, to, to train them in surgery or in other educational venues. So I wondered how, how that balance affects the way you give feedback, either for positive feedback or uh, critical feedback for learners you're working with. Yeah. Um, feedback um, is best given. There's an immediacy that's important with feedback because if too long of a time goes on, then the feedback is not as relevant or useful. Um, so that's part of it. And um, giving the feedback, um, you know, they always say like, oh, sandwich positive and then something negative or to work on and then positive. But a lot of times if you have an open dialogue with who you're teaching, then they'll they'll be a lot more open to any feedback that you give them. Um, the important thing is that they know that you're on the same team, you're on the same page, you have the same goal that you want them to succeed, and the feedback is important for them um, to get there. It's not punitive or anything like that. Um, so that's an important concept uh, before even giving the feedback. So then the feedback is actually a lot more constructive um, um, and useful for the learner. That makes me think of um, building like a culture of safety for the learner that you talked about. So, um, and I don't mean literal, you know, OSHA safety, but yeah. <laughs> but sort of a, a supportive enough relationship where the learner feels comfortable having questions, asking questions, making small mistakes. Yeah, it's um, we've been lucky in Alabama because we have a, a whole department that. Um, uh, generally has that kind of culture, which is nice for our learners. Um, I think it's similar here at Wisconsin with all the um, experts in education here, um, but it's not like that in the rest of the country. But it is important. Um, people learn better in uh, different environments depending on their personality, but often if they're afraid of getting bumped from a surgery or getting yelled at or something like that, they're not going to be as their mind is not going to be as flexible um, to process things in learning. I'm also kind of curious, though, you talked about failure as part of the learning. Like, that's kind of the, we do something a little bit wrong and course correct for the next time that we have to do it. Um, but how do you balance in a surgical specialty where failure can actually, be can bad. be kind of scary, can, <laughs> um, could be yeah. a bad patient outcome, I guess... How do you make sure that there's still that opportunity for learning and growth without sacrificing right. safety? So in the in the OR, we definitely don't want them to fail um, or to have a complication. So we have to be a little bit more mindful and strategic about how to get them uh, to think critically about the goals of surgery and the steps to get there. Um, but then also trying to train them with the proper technique each step of the way which takes an immense amount of time and patience, which is often something that surgeons don't have. So a lot of times it's kind of a little bit more stepwise, this for this case, then the next case we'll work on something else to ultimately take care of the patients for the day so you're not there for longer than you need to be. How do you measure good teaching and learning with that? <laughs> it's, um, it's hard to measure. 
um, sometimes it can't be measured. And a lot of it is really individualized to the relationship between the trainee and the teacher mentor. The ultimate measure is if your trainee, you know, goes on to be successful a lot of times and looking back um, and being a part of that success for the next generation. But as far as measuring teaching and teaching outcomes, that's a very kind of difficult thing. You know, we've, we try to do it with evaluations uh, on a Likert scale and stuff like that. But there is, uh, there, th- that's probably not the most accurate way. Certainly there are people who are looked up to as educational leaders or educational gurus. Um, but it seems a lot more, it's not as objective. It's not necessarily something you can measure all the time. What kind of qualities make for a good surgical teacher? Understanding, I think one of the important things is to understand where the surgical trainee is, where their abilities are, so you know exactly where they need to be um, and what skills to develop at any given time, um, which changes throughout the course of training because obviously they learn as they progress through residency training or fellowship training. Um, So understanding exactly where they are with their surgical skills and techniques um, and being able to... um, kind of partner with them and uh, discuss with them what what do they want to work on when and trying to get through that while balancing patient care um, and obviously productivity, which is important for departments and and healthcare in general. Um, But knowing that about your trainee is probably the most important thing and then being able to figure out how best to address it in an efficient manner where they um, have a, a, a high yield of what they learned. So on the other side, what makes for a good learner? A good learner, um, sometimes it's a little bit like being a chameleon to figure out like what is, uh, it's interesting in, in, in most cases, including medicine in general, the, the, the learner is often expected to adjust their learning style to the teaching style of the teacher, but the best teachers probably adjust their teaching style to the learning style of the learner. Um, not everyone can do that, um, especially with um, the constraints of time and, and you know, having all the patients to take care of. Um, but to help that as a learner, you can figure out and talk to your surgical mentor to work on them or point out, like, this is what I'm working on. Um, this is what I'm focusing on. Because often after a surgery, when they get feedback, they might get critiqued on X, Y, and Z but they were actually trying to work on A, B, and C. So having um, kind of that conversation ahead of time to know what they're working on and what they're striving towards uh, with each incremental step is probably important. It sounds like at UAB you start integrating surgical learning really, really early. As soon as someone's in residency, it kind of becomes a part of that. And it also sort of sounds like that's not consistent across residencies where some of the um, surgical skill building might happen later, um, not not exclusively, but that it ends up being maybe a little bit like backloaded. Um, what are the advantages, I guess, of starting it immediately, very very early? Yeah, um, when we start them sooner, uh, when we can, um, we can actually identify kind of what their surgical skills are ahead of time, and there are, are probably two good advantages. We can find who's going to be good so we can push them further um, to where they need to be with based on their ability. Um, but we can also find who is 
underperforming or a little bit below average and get them help sooner rather than later. As most OBGYN programs are structured, it's usually more OB heavy on the front end, which does involve surgery, but not as much as the latter years with GYN surgery um, and increasing graduated autonomy. Um, so often surgical skills are not really discovered until the second half of residency a lot of times in a lot of places. The earlier you can find their ability, the better you can either get them the extra help they might need to get them up to speed or find out who's um, who has a knack for it, who has an innate kind of surgical vision and, and help them on their kind of individualized curve as well. It seems like surgery is changing or maybe um, there's just going to be an increased amount of technology uh, integrated with it. And I guess, does that change the way that education needs to be approached? Yeah, it probably will evolve as surgical technology uh, evolves um, going forward. Um, Surgical systems um, are going to be advancing, and as they advance, a lot of times there's no one necessarily knows the best way to teach it. So part of it is figuring out what is the best and most efficient way to teach it and also the safest way. Um, With minimally invasive surgeries, um, there's at least the advantage of being able to use some simulation. Um, Open surgeries, there's some simulation, but it's a little bit more low fidelity. Um, But especially with decreasing volume in our field of major surgeries, we probably have to figure out a way to augment their surgical experience and their surgical training uh, to maximize their learning while they're in residency. Because I suppose sometimes there's just no avoiding open surgery. Yeah, there, there. Sometimes, yeah, it, the surgical approach is really the decision between you know the physician and the patient, and there's you know different approaches for different patients based on their their anatomy and their pathology and what needs to occur for surgery. Um, And based on that, knowing the different approaches and how to teach all the different approaches will be important and how to balance that. So what do you think is next or sort of the future of medical and surgical education? I mean, it'll probably involve increasing technologies. Um, Unfortunately, there's not a lot of funding or resources for for those types of things. Um, it's not like video games where, you know, programmers and those companies will make a lot more money building software and, and, um, games and, and simulations for that field. Um, there's, there's less funding and resources for that in medical simulation, medical education. But I think that is probably going to be the future, especially as we focus on outcomes going forward, um, and how to train better and more efficiently for, you know, the future physicians and surgeons that are going to be taking care of future populations and how that's going to relate to the outcomes. On the next Women's Health Cast, we'll be talking to Dr. Eliza Bennett about fertility tracking apps, what they are, how people use them, whether they're effective as birth control, and the data security concerns people should consider before downloading a menstrual tracker. The Women's Health Cast is a production of the UW-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. 
You can find the Women's Health Cast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And of course, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WISCOBGYN. Please let us know how we're doing, rate and review us in your podcast app, and let us know what women's health topic you'd like to learn about. Thanks for listening.